Hello and welcome to the Never Standing Still podcast. My name is Stephanie and in this podcast episode I'll be sharing with you the story of humanitarian Lady Rider of Warsaw, better known as Sue Rider. 2024 marks the centenary of the birth of this remarkable woman in Yorkshire, England, yet today most people only recognise her name for her charity shops, for which she was a pioneer. A smaller amount may know someone who lived in one of her hospices, yet there is so much more to discover. Stay with me to learn about her phenomenal life, from looking after spies in the Second World War to establishing a worldwide network of homes and projects to help those that needed it, an inspiring act of remembrance in a personal mission to ease the suffering experienced in the Second World War and beyond. This episode we'll delve into Sue's early life, I feel I can call her Sue, but perhaps not if I ever met her. Using interviews from the archive of her charity, Lady Rider of Warsaw Memorial Trust. More about that later. Firstly, Sue Rider will introduce herself and set the scene for finding out more about her fascinating life. You may be um, interested or maybe wondering how the work started, as far as I'm concerned. And um, though I don't want to be personal... It's easier perhaps if I do it in a chronological manner. And it was uh, when I was growing up, about six and seven and eight year old, I used to go around with my mother in the villages and also visiting very bad housing areas which were called slums. And we sometimes uh, were accompanied by the district nurses or doctors. And then we got to know the individuals concerned, where they lived and what their troubles were, if they were sick or lonely or old or so ill that they couldn't move out of their room. And one learned a lot from them about their own experiences in life. And I was so interested that I'd hoped one day to be able to take up nursing. At the same time, we were very conscious of the legacies and the aftermath of what the First World War had left, all the problems and sorrows that had affected nearly every family in Britain at that time. And also we realized that the Nazis had come into power and that there was racial persecution Sue wrote a rather hefty autobiography, Child of My Love, which is very useful for an overview of her early life. Her childhood, for want of a better description, sounds idyllic, but with an early awareness of the privilege she lived in. This was instilled in her by her mother, Mabel, one of those women of her time and class who were wealthy and spent their time in an early form of social work. This would instil in Sue values of social responsibility that she maintained throughout her life. Sue was born Margaret Susan Ryder on the 3rd of July 1924 in Leeds, Yorkshire, the youngest child of a large blended family. Her father Charles had been married before and Mabel was his second wife. Sue was the youngest of ten. There is some confusion about her birth year as Sue would give this as 1923 but the archivist in me made me check the birth register. She was born in 1924. The family were wealthy. Charles Ryder had been director of Tetley Breweries and was a gentleman farmer. The family lived at Scarcroft Grange on the Leeds to Weatherby Road with servants in a grand garden and farm estate. They moved to another large house and estate at Great Thurlow in Suffolk for four months of the year every year. The family would travel down on a special railway coach reserved for them and their luggage, marked with red tape. 
However, the depression of the 1930s hit Charles Ryder's finances and the Leeds estate was given up. Great Thurlow became their home. Sue was educated at home until she was sent away to boarding school. This meant being taught by her mother and she had tutors for music, French and dancing. She was involved with her father's work managing their estates, which included looking after her own small herd of Jersey cows and helping her sister in the dairy. One specialty was making butter and Devonshire cream. From her autobiography, both of Sue's parents were keen to involve her in their lives and pursuits, and alongside being involved with the work of the household servants, it sounds a very busy childhood. Here Sue gives an example. I was asked earlier to mention how I first became involved in doing this work, and the answer very simply is that I grew into it as a child. I went round with my mother, who was a very ardent worker for slum clearance in Yorkshire, and then together in the villages we used to visit those who were housebound or old or unable for some reason or other to leave their rooms and cottages. And I learned a lot with her. Uh, sometimes we were accompanied by the doctors or the district nurses. And it was my dream in those days as a child uh, to take up nursing or medicine. Being sent away to prep school as a weekly boarder age nine appears to have been a shock. But her father believed in discipline and self-reliance and had impressed on Sue the importance of learning a trade or profession, so early plans to run away lost their appeal. Sue joined Benenden School in Kent in 1936, aged 12. School subject loves were economics, domestic science and her hobby was listening to music. Sue gained the Westminster Diploma for Domestic Science. School anecdotes show a mischievous child who loved a practical joke as can be heard in this talk to an Australian school where she mentions how she and her school friends encouraged a speaker to speed things up. When I was at school um, some time ago, we had a lot of people who came and gave us talks on many different subjects, but there was one uh, who didn't really have much idea of time. And, um, well, he was known for this, and he read uh, beautiful prose and poetry, but he used to go on for hours. And I'm afraid one day, I, uh, in domestic science, it was called then, put some hot pepper in his soup. <laughs> and it had the desired effect, because uh, uh, that particular lecture, he seemed to be more alive and conscious of time. As she has already said, Sue developed an interest in nursing, and according to her autobiography, after leaving school in 1940, age 16, trained at a local hospital and took examinations. But in a way so characteristic of Sue's personality, she never quite says which hospital or in what type of nursing. When she volunteered to serve in the Second World War, her record says she has qualifications in cooking, first aid, home nursing and anti-gas, perhaps something to do with preparations for gas attacks on the home front. Interestingly, Benenden schools evicted to Newquay before the Battle of Britain in July 1940 and became a casualty clearing station. This might explain Sue mentioning nursing soldiers evacuated from Dunkirk, May to June 1940, in her autobiography. Perhaps she volunteered there. In December 1941, the UK Parliament passed the second National Conscription Act, extending conscription to women. Sue decided to volunteer before she could be conscripted. She chose the First Aid Nursing Yeomanry, or Fanny, 
More about them in this clip from an interview she did with the Imperial War Museum in 1987. Because I went straight into um, the Fanny, the oldest women's corps in the country, which had served the Belgian and French armies in, in the line. They weren't accepted by the British until nearly the end of the First World War. Uh, and the Fannies still exist today, and they uh, were quite... Uh, well, they were very keen on training, as they are now, and so between the two world wars, the, they, um, they went to camp every year, and they had weekly or fortnightly training. There were about a hundred of them, I think. So when I joined up, um, it was still a small corps, but we had a tremendous um, esprit de corps and a great feeling of um, identity. And it was totally unlike any of the services in that sense. People knew each other by their, because it was small. And we were in great awe of those who'd served in the First World War. We called them sort of battle axes, but they, they were really women who'd had a tremendous experience in the line with Belgian armies and the French. They'd won a lot of awards and, and they were quite rightly very strict. What made you decide to join the Fannies? Well, I didn't want to be mobilised. I didn't want to be mobilised or called up. Why not? Well, if there was something voluntary to do, then better to go in for that. Um, I, I think the idea of being mobilised horrified me. And so um, I went, I suppose, a year before I needed to. To find out more, I spoke with Lynette Beardwood, herself Fanny, who has worked in the archives of the First Aid Nursing Yeomanry, who have Sue Ryder's war service record. We took some time to take a look at the file together over Zoom. They were founded in 1907. Yeah. Which makes them the oldest uniformed women's organisation still in existence. It's amazing. Yeah. And um, apart from the military nurses, obviously, who predate them. Uh, and they were founded actually by a cavalry officer, uh, a professional soldier who had served in four wars, both of them, and had been wounded. And he was one of these go-getters. And in fact, at the time, the um, Territorial Army Act, they'd started having, moving from militias, where there was local militias, into having what became the Territorial Army. Okay. And of course, you've got the, you know, the Boy Scouts and followed by the Girl Guards. So there was a lot of this this idea of grouping people together to train them. And so this fellow had, this fellow, Captain Baker, Edward Baker, uh, who was originally a sergeant major in the, in the Guards, he'd been wounded and he'd noticed that, you know, a lot of the casualties, the fatalities, were caused because um, they were not able to evacuate people from the battlefield to the casualty clearing station. And so people would have survived had they been able to be evacuated. So he had this idea and he decided it was going to be women and they were mounted. And the original idea was that they were going to ride onto battlefields and scoop a soldier up on the back of the horse and gallop off to the nearest first aid post. And this is really how it started. They were not nurses. They'd had to do paramilitary, uh, sorry, uh, what you call paramedical training. But these women, they just got stuck in and they learned how to do it. And they, they really did look after the sick and wounded. Um, 
as well as driving the sick and wounded round, as well as driving supplies to the to the front north of Calais, the, the Belgian front. And but they just it, it's really quite quite remarkable that these women from very cushioned backgrounds got stuck in and were actually, you know, cleaning, cleaning sick and wounded men, men with typhoid, men with, you know, pneumonia, men with God knows what, men with shell shock, as well as injured, you know, militarily injured, scrubbing floor, you know, and it's kind of like, there's always been this very practical aspect to them. So although people think the family, it has a bit of a glamorous, glamorous ring to it because of the agents in World War Two, they always, always had this, Go to it, and and never. I mean, if you didn't want to do it, you wouldn't have lasted five minutes. Well, no, and they they were a private army, weren't they? What does that mean? Well, they were a pri private support army because they didn't carry arms. They were they worked very close to the front line. I mean, there were other women's organisations like the Scottish Women's Hospital um, and and people like that. So they were not alone. The um, the Women's Legion. They were they were not alone, but the reason that their name is known is because they never disbanded. And so many of these excellent organizations were, 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 you know, rolled up after World War One. They don't have any archives or such as they have there, you know, not, not really um, of great interest, shall we say. Um, there is quite a lot in the War Museum. But, but the fannies continue. And so from the, from the Belgians, then the British finally, you know, realized they wanted to release um, the RAMC drivers to send to the front in, in um, the end of '15. So the British took them on as drivers, and they were the first women to drive officially for the British Army. Of course, they'd been driving unofficially, um, <laughs> lending a hand. And so, so then that they became a British convoy, and then of course the French pitched in and said, "Well, we like that." And so then there was units which then attached to the French army and wore French insignia, French hats, etc., etc. So by the end of World War One, they were British units, French units, and Belgian units. You know, and that's how they managed to accumulate this vast array of medals, military medals, um, British, Guerre, uh, Légion d'Honneur, Order of Leopold, gallantry medals, as well as a whole draft, a whole raft of service, uh, you know, campaign medals in our medal collection, of which sadly we don't have you know, a huge number, but dispersed throughout the world in private collections and, and museums is, is just phenomenal, very interesting. So January 1942, there's this young woman, signs up, and she offers her services as a cook. So she was then sent to, they were very over Hall, uh, Thorne Park, etc., etc., north, all around um, St. Albans, all around there, yeah, Banbury, where all the Poles were uh, were being trained. A lot of families working in, attached to Poland went to Scotland because the, the Poles, Polish army was then given Scotland as their headquarters. So other, other families, who we call Polish families, yeah, um, because they had Polish insignia on their, mm. on their, you know, um, on their jacket, and um, they were in Scotland and uh, stayed in Scotland again, doing welfare work, doing um, support work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
So basically, um, they you know they'd recruited, they were training these po SOE. So they're all what we call free fannies recruited into special operations executive in a whole variety of roles, including forgery, signal, the big one. Um, they trained as signalers, and they were all the, all the radio stations around Banbury, Bicester, where where all the you know, SOE stations were. Um, that's where the fannies were, um, not Morse code, yeah, receiving, yeah, receiving and 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 sending to yeah. the agents in 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 Europe. Well, let's talk about Sue. Um, I know we've chatted before that there's a bit of it's a bit mysterious how old she was when she signed up. But if we take her birth date, which is registered with the GRO. Mm -hmm. In July 1924, when she signed up, and we know that she signed up because she didn't want to be conscripted, so she volunteered, she was 17 and a half. So is that a usual age for people yeah. signing up with a fanny at that time? Yes. Well, no, you have to be 18. Okay. okay. And there were two or three, but she wasn't actually officially entered until as you notice january 1st okay. yeah yeah right but in order to be you needed your parents permission you know you couldn't do anything until you were 21 yeah whatever she did she, you know she was doing with her parents permission right yeah and she certainly wouldn't i think there's a couple of them you know perhaps they were 18 in i mean she was would have been 18 in in july in yes, yes so she was she was right. in her 18th year but yes. she wasn't yes. 18 exactly. yet exactly and so yeah. because they were only going up to you know to cook in um etc so but she certainly never did that in 1939 no she didn't she can't have done she was still anyway, at benenden well, school so let's talk a bit about sue and working as a cook we've got quite a few um nice um remembrances and reminiscences in uh, some of the books that have been written about this period of time and it includes Margaret Pawley we've been mentioning her a book called In Obedience to Instructions which is about a uh, fanny sewing in the Mediterranean during the Second World War so it's clear from those reminiscences <laughs> that when we talk about um, them being cooks especially when they were out in the field abroad this was really ma magicking things up out of no nowhere in extremely basic cooking facilities just just like world war one I. I mean you know yeah. people now i mean we, we listen we, we have the same in the core you know some of our youngsters tend to kind of hero worship agents who were parachuted into france and shot which is you know quite rightly um you know as a, 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 a you know admiration what these young women, I mean, these young women were put on a ship going out of Liverpool across the Mediterranean. I mean, don't forget, when eight fannies went to the bottom of the sea, going from um, Kenya to um, Ceylon, Japanese submarine, we lost eight, eight, we call them Kenya fannies, eight Kenya fannies, the ship went down in about three minutes, one survived. It was the greatest loss of female personnel because they were... Uh, there were nine families on board, one survived, um, wrens and um, army nurses. And they were being shipped over to, because it's a big signal. They were all signals, yeah? Yeah. Or yeah. and, and, oh, people who were 
you know, like like Sue and the gang, as it were, they were working you know, in tents in the desert trying to provide food because armies do march on their stomach and it doesn't matter what they're going to do. You cannot function unless you have your bodily functions taken care of. Of course. And these people, these women who, and, and young girls, I mean, you know, they would have been, they were shipped from Liverpool 1943, early, sometime in November 1940. So the maximum, some of them were, were 19, had never been out of England, I'm sure most of them, you know, had really not been out of home for very long, not been out of school, and put on the ship, ships and, and sent to North Africa. Uh, or to Cairo, or to, you know, in the end, and then, you know, when they start to send the further afield into, you know, Burma, and then on to, et cetera. It's phenomenal. I mean, you know, phenomenal stuff. And yet, oh, well, they didn't get the George Cross, no. But, and so, no need to to big them up, because I just think they were terrific. Yes, yeah. And the situation, and the fact that they were able to write about it with a degree of humour. And they they weren't just doing things like that though, were they? Because Sue could drive, she learnt to drive a tractor. Father was a gentleman farmer and had large estates, and the the family were very involved. And she already knew how to drive a tractor at least when she signed up. But from her um, her autobiography, Child of My Love, she also talks about how they were doing first aid nursing. And yet they were paramedics. I mean, yeah. everybody who joined the fanny, okay, free fanny, had to do the basic fanny training. And um, everybody, right? And that meant, you know, scrubbing floors at Overthorpe Hall, it was called, etc. Paramedics, you know, most You had to do it. You would not be proficient enough to be an operator, but you had to learn it. Um, and it's still like that. I mean, we don't do the Morse code anymore, but, you know, and we don't scrub floors, fortunately. But in camp, it's, you know, because when we go to camp, I say we, I mean, I'm retired now, I'm, I'm not, that, not active. That's what you do, you know. And the officers serve the, always always the officers serve the, the troops for one, for one day. It's not, it, it's very, very rank resistance being funny. She made a corporal in the end, Sue. She was actually a corporal. So Sue, Sue Ryder was demobilised at the end of the war, would have been in Italy and um, flown back or, or, or shipped back to England from when she went on to um, start her, her second phase of her life, which is um, her extraordinary achievements in charitable work um, and the, the, the impact, and which in many ways was, was a result of her very close relationship, the close relationships that she developed with all the Poles with whom she'd served. Um, and as for the Fanny, again, similarly to post-World War One, they were not disbanded um, because they, they were independent and have continued since then as an independent, still all-female, still all-voluntary, still uniformed unit, which, was, which works for the civil and military authorities, uh, ranging from the, uh, the Foreign Office, to the, uh, the British Army, to the Metropolitan Police and the City of London Police. And it is a cohesive um, unit based in London, based in Wellington Barracks in London, and whose um, volunteer work is, encompasses a huge range of, of 
um, of talent. Um, not nursing, that's the one thing. They still have to do paramedical training, but we always say make sure you, if you faint, don't fall at a fanny's feet, etc. So, um, but they do a lot in, in, a lot in signals um, and administrative work and support work and still train, uh, still recruit. And, and uh, having celebrated their centenary, in nine in two thousand and seven, and now heading for their next big master. From Sue's funny record, we know that she did her basic training in Catteringham in nineteen forty two. From there, she was assigned to MOI special projects and was posted to Special Training School 17 at Brickendenbury in Hertfordshire, where Poles were trained. Her job was as a cook, but also to escort agents to training courses, maintaining vehicles and looking after agents, known as BODs, as they faced a precarious future. Intense, brief friendships were often formed. In 1943, this work was expanded to Italy and Sue was one of 12 sent there by boat via North Africa to continue the work, catering for 80 service personnel in extremely basic conditions. The rest of the war was spent serving throughout Italy, culminating in Rome just after its liberation in June 1944, where she had the luxury of sleeping in a proper bed and having a bath. In 1945, Sue was posted back to the UK to the Polish canteen at Fairmilehead near Edinburgh and was demobbed in 1945, her file says, in consequence of taking up relief work abroad. In this clip, Sue talks about the impact this period of time had on her and why she decided to do so. While I had the privilege of serving with special forces, men and women in the resistance and those captured by the Gestapo, and sent to Nazi concentration camps, where 20 million people of over 30 different nationalities were killed. The events and scenes of those overcrowded days made an immensely deep and unforgettable impression on me. As one of the relief workers, I could only hope and pray that such unparalleled suffering and grief would never be seen anywhere on the same scale in the world again. I learned from their example many things, particularly the way they upheld human dignity and their sense of humour, sense of values, in the midst of the impersonal, almost inhuman conditions in which they existed. Very many of them were sick and never regained their health. A world which seemed apart, and where materialism and selfishness as yet had found no entry, for poverty was shared by all. I strove as best I could to help first in the dreary and dreadful camps and overcrowded hospitals, later going on to found small homes for the sick survivors and their children in Poland, Yugoslavia, Greece and Israel. This help offered to the survivors and many others of different nationalities and creeds who are still in great need in various parts of the world would, it was hoped, be a living memorial to those who paid so great a price in the fight against evil and in the service of the Allies. In 
Now we have come to the end of this first episode, exploring the early life of humanitarian Lady Sue Ryder of Warsaw to mark the centenary of her birth in 1924. Thank you for listening. I'd like to give my thanks to Lynette Beardwood and the Fanny for allowing me access to Lady Ryder's service record and for sharing her knowledge and to the Lady Ryder of Warsaw Memorial Trust for their assistance and access to their archives. The interview with Lady Ryder about her war career is thanks to and copyright of the Imperial War Museum and has been reproduced here with their awareness and permission. Books I've mentioned in this episode include Lady Ryder's Autobiography, Child of My Love Biography, What Some There Be by A.J. Forrest In Obedience to Instructions by Margaret Pawley The Lady Ryder of Warsaw Memorial Trust have produced a record of Sue Ryder's work to mark her centenary year, Sue Ryder, A Life Lived for Others, by Joanna Bogle. Find out more on their website. In the next episode, we will be exploring Sue Ryder's life after 1945 and tracing her next steps in Germany as she embarked on the relief work that would define the rest of her life. Please do subscribe to our podcast to be notified about our next episode. You can also follow the Lady Rider of Warsaw Memorial Trust on social media at Lady Rider Trust on Instagram and Twitter, Lady Rider of Warsaw Memorial Trust on Facebook or on their website www.lrwmt.org.uk to find out more about their work. Thank you for listening and see you in episode two.